chapter 23, verses 1 through 49, verses 1 through 12. And the whole multitude of them rose and led unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked him whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also at Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard so many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Briquette Notes In this chapter, we have a relation of the blackest and saddest tragedy that was ever acted upon the stage of the world, namely, the barbarous and bloody murder of the holy and innocent Jesus by the Jews, his own countrymen, the best of kings put to death by his own subjects. And the first steps towards it is his arraignment before Pilate and Herod. They post him from one to another. Pilate sends him to Herod, and Herod, having made sufficient sport with him, remands him to Pilate. Neither of them find any fault in him worthy of death, yet neither of them would release him. Observe here that our Savior being before Pilate answers him readily and cautiously. Art thou the king of the Jews, says Pilate? Thou sayest it, says our Savior. Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He replied, I am. Hence says the Apostle, 1 Timothy 6.13, that Jesus Christ, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession teaching us that though we may and sometimes ought to hold our peace when our reputation is concerned, yet we must never be silent when the honor of God and his truth may be effectually promoted by a free and full confession. Yet it is farther observable that our Savior, being before Herod, would neither answer him to any question nor work any miracles before him. This was an instance and evidence of our Lord's great humility in refusing to work miracles before Herod, who desired it only to gratify his curiosity. Thus do vile men abuse the holy power of God, desiring to see it exerted for admiration and pastime, not to be convinced or converted by it, but only to please their foolish fancy. And as admirable was the patience as the humility of Christ. And his present silence, who neither at Herod's request nor at the Jews' importunity and false accusations could be moved to answer anything. Observe farther, that though Herod had murdered Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist, and our own Savior's life was in danger by Herod heretofore, yet now he has him in his hands, he lets him go. Only he first abuses him and mocks him, and arrays him in a gorgeous robe like a mock king. Thus were all the marks of scorn imaginable put upon our dear Redeemer. Had all this jeering and sportful shame did our Lord undergo to show what was due unto us for our sins. 
and also to give us an example to bear all the shame and reproach imaginable for his sake, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame. Hebrews 12.2 Observe lastly the wicked accusation brought in against our blessed Redeemer. We found, say they, this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. O hellish untruth! How directly contrary to the whole course and tenor of Christ's life was this accusation. By his doctrine he preached up subjection to governors and governments, saying, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And by his practice he confirmed his own doctrine, working a miracle to pay tribute to Caesar. Satan could help them draw up an indictment as black as hell against the innocent Jesus, but all the power of hell and darkness could not prove a tittle of it. Verses 13 through 25. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him, and release him. For of necessity must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I've found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how unwilling, how very unwilling, Pilate was to be an instrument of our Savior's death. One, while he postulates with the chief priest, saying, What evil hath he done? Nay, St. Luke here declares that Pilate came forth three several times, professing that he had found no fault in him. Where note, how much more justice and equity Christ met with from Pilate, a heathen, than from the chief priests and the people of the Jews, professing the true religion. Oh, how desperate is the hatred that grows upon the root of religion. Learn hence that hypocrites within the church may be guilty of such tremendous acts of wickedness as the consciences of infidels and pagans without the church may boggle at and protest against. Pilate, a pagan, absolves Christ, while the hypocritical Jews that heard his doctrine and saw his miracles do condemn him. Observe, too, how Pilate at last suffers himself to be overcome with the importunity of the Jews and delivers the holy and innocent Jesus, contrary to his judgment and conscience, to the will of his murderers. It is a vain apology for sins when persons pretend that they are not committed with their own consent, but at the instigation and importunity of others. For such is the frame and constitution of a man's soul that none can make a person wicked without his own consent. It is no extenuation of Pilate's sin, no alleviation of his punishment, that to please the people he delivered our Savior, contrary to the directions of his own conscience, to be crucified. Observe 3. 
the persons whose life the wicked Jews preferred before the life of the holy Jesus, Barabbas. We will that thou release Barabbas and deliver Jesus. Mark these hypocritical high priests who pretend such a zeal for God and religion. They prefer the life of a person guilty of the highest immoralities and debaucheries, even murder and sedition, before the best man that ever lived in the world. But whence sprang the malice and hatred of the high priests and people of the Jews against our Savior? Why, plainly from hence, Christ interpreted the laws of God more strictly than their lusts could bear, and he lived a more holy, useful, and excellent life than they could endure. Now nothing enrages the men of the world more against the professors, but especially the preachers of the gospel, than holiness of doctrine and strictness of life and conversation. Such as preach and live well, let them expect such enmity and opposition, such malice and persecution, such suffering and trials, as will shock an ordinary patience and constancy of mind. Our master met with it, let his ministers prepare for it. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. Burkett notes, the sentence of death being passed by Pilate, who can with dry eyes behold the sad pomp of our Savior's execution? Forth comes the blessed Jesus out of Pilate's gate, bearing that cross which soon after was to bear him. With his cross on his shoulder, he marches towards Golgotha. And when they see he can go no faster, they compel Simon of Cyrenia, not out of compassion, but indignation, to bear his cross. The Cyrenian being a Gentile who bore Christ's cross, some think was thereby signified that Gentiles should have a part in Christ, as well as the Jews, and be sharers with them in the benefits of the cross. Verses 27 through 31. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Burkett notes, There were four sorts of persons which attended our Savior at his crucifixion. The executioners that tormented him, the Jews that mocked him, the spectators and onlookers that marked him, and sympathizing friends which lamented him. These last Christ bespoke, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. That is, weep rather upon your own account than mine. Reserve your sorrows for the calamities coming upon yourselves and your children. It's very probable that the tears and lamentations of many of these mourners were but the fruits of tender nature, not the effects of faith, and flowing from a principle of grace. Learn thence that melting affections and sorrows, even from the sense of Christ's sufferings, are not infallible marks of grace. The history of Christ's suffering is very tragical and pathetical, and may melt in genuous nature, where there is no renewed principle of grace. These motions of the affections may rather be a fit and mood than the very frame and temper of the soul. There are times and seasons when the roughest and most obdurate hearts may be pensive and tender, but that is not its temper and frame, but only a fit, a pang, a transient passion. 
There is no inferring or concluding, then, a work of grace upon the heart, simply and barely from the moving or melting of the affections. Nature will have its good moods, but grace is steady. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, says Christ. Verses 32 and 33. And there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Burkett notes, Here we see the infamous company that our holy Lord suffered with, two thieves. It had been a sufficient disparagement to our blessed Savior to be sorted with the best of men, but to be numbered with the scum of mankind is such an indignity as confounds our thoughts. This was designed by the Jews to dishonor and disgrace our Savior the more, and to persuade the world that he was the greatest of offenders. But God overruled this, for fulfilling an ancient prophecy concerning the Messiah, Isaiah 53.12, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted as raiments and cast lots. Burkett notes, Christ had often preached the doctrine of forgiving enemies and praying for them. He practices it here himself in a most exemplary manner. Where note one, the mercy desired and prayed for, and that is forgiveness. Two, the person desiring that mercy, Christ, the dying Jesus. Three, the persons for whom it is desired, his bloody murderers. Father, forgive them. Four, the argument used or motive urged to procure this mercy. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Learn hence, one, that ignorance is the usual cause of enmity against Christ. Two, that there is forgiveness with God for such as oppose, yea, persecute Christ out of ignorance. That to forgive enemies and to beg forgiveness for them is an evidence of a Christ-like frame of spirit. Father, forgive them. Not that the gospel requires of us any insensibility of wrongs and injuries that allow us a sense of offered evils, though it forbids us to revenge them. Yet the more tender our resentments are, the more excellent our forgiveness is, so that a forgiving spirit doth not exclude a sense of injuries, but the sense of injuries graces the forgiveness of them. Neither doth the gospel require of us, under the notion of forgiving injuries, to deliver up our rights and properties to the lust of every one that will invade them, but meekly to receive evil, and readily to return good. Verses 35 through 38. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription was also written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. A mighty aggravation of our Lord's suffering upon the cross, namely, the mocking derision which he was met with in his dying moments. As he endured the pain, so he despised the shame. Cruel mocking was our Lord tried with, both from the common people and from the chief priests. Yet the common people's reviling him and wagging their heads at him was not so much to be taken notice of as the chief priests, who were men of age and gravity, and the ministers of religion. For them barbarously to mock him in his misery, and which was worse, 
atheistically to jeer and scoff at his faith in affiance to God, saying he trusted in God that he would deliver him, let him deliver him if he will have him. This was such an indignity as confounds our thoughts. But hence we learn, one, that persecutors are generally atheistical scoffers. The chief priests and elders who persecuted Christ do blaspheme God. They mocked at his powers and deride his providence, which was as wicked as to deny his being. Two, we learn from this example that such as minister to God in holy things by way of office, if they be not the best, they are generally the worst of men. No such bitter enemies to the power of godliness as such preachers who were never experimentally acquainted with the efficacy and power of it upon their own hearts and lives. Observe, too, the inscription wrote by Pilate over our suffering Savior. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was the custom of the Romans, when they crucified a malefactor, to publish the cause of his death in capital letters placed over the head of the person. Now it is observable how wonderfully the wisdom of God overruled the heart and pen of Pilate to draw this title, which was truly honorable, and fix it to his cross. Pilate is Christ's herald and proclaims him king of the Jews. Learn hence that the kingship and regal dignity of Christ was proclaimed by an enemy, and that in time of his greatest sufferings and reproaches. Pilate, without his knowledge, did our Savior an imminent piece of service. Verily, he did that for Christ which none of his own disciples durst do. Not that he did it designedly, and with any intent to put honor upon Christ, but from the special overriding providence of God. No thanks to Pilate for all this, because the highest services performed for Christ undesignedly shall never be accepted nor rewarded by him. Verses 39 to 42. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Burkett notes, Here we have a further aggravation of our Lord's suffering upon the cross from the company he suffered with, the two thieves who reviled him with the rest. St. Matthew and St. Mark say they both reviled him. St. Luke says one of them reviled. Possibly both of them might do it at first, and one of them repent, which, if so, increases the wonder of the penitent thief's conversion. From the impenitent thief's reviling of Christ, when he was at a very point of death, and even in the suburbs of hell, we learn that neither shame nor pain will change the mind of a resolute sinner. But even then, when he is in the suburbs of hell, will he blaspheme. From the penitent thief's confessing of Christ and praying to him, Lord, remember me, when thou art comest into thy kingdom, we learn both the efficacy and freeness of divine grace. 1. The efficacious power of it. Oh, how powerful must that grace be, which wrought such a change in an instant, which supplied that heart in a moment, which had been hardening in sin for so many years. 2. The freeness of it, which takes hold of his heart when he was at the height of sin, and not only void of grace, but seemed past grace. Oh, the powerful efficacy and adorable freeness of the heart-changing grace of God in this vile person. It disposes him to own his sin, to confess the justness of the punishment, to justify Christ's innocency, to reprove his fellow companion, 
and to pray to a crucified Christ and to intercede with him, not for present deliverance from death, but for a place in Christ's kingdom, where we learn, one, that true conversion is never too late for obtaining mercy and salvation. Two, that true conversion, how late soever, will have its fruits. The aforementioned fruits of faith and repentance were found with this penitent thief. Yet must not this extraordinary case be drawn into example. This extraordinary and miraculous grace of God is not to be expected ordinarily. We have no warrant to expect an overpowering degree of God's grace to turn our hearts in an instant at the hour of death, when we have lived in forgetfulness of God and in a supine neglect of our soul's concerns all the days of our life. For it is evident, as to this case of the penitent thief's conversion at the last hour, one, it is an example without a promise, two, it is but a single example, three, it is an example recorded by but one evangelist. The Spirit of God, foreseeing what an ill use some would make of this instance, leaves one example upon record, that none might despair, and but one, that none might presume. For this thief probably never had any knowledge of Christ before. Five, this thief improved his time at last, as never did any before or after, for he believed Christ to be the Savior of the world, when one disciple had betrayed him, another denied him, and all had forsaken him. He owned him to be the Son of God, the Lord of life, when he was suffering the pains of death, and seemingly deserted by his father. He proclaims him Lord of Paradise and disposer of the kingdom of heaven when the Jews had condemned him and the Gentiles crucified him as the vilest of impostors. He feared God, owned the justice of his punishment, was solicitous not for the preservation of his body, but for the salvation of his soul, yea, not only of his own, but of his brothers that suffered with him, so that he glorified Christ more at the moment of his death than some do in the whole course of their lives. 6. This was a miracle, with the glory whereof Christ would honor the ignominy of his cross, so that we have no more ground to expect such another conversion than we have to expect a second crucifixion. This converted person was the first fruits of the blood of the cross. From whence we learn that God can, and sometimes doth, though very seldom, prepare men for glory immediately before their dissolution by death. His grace is his own. He may dispense it how, and when, and where, and to whom he pleases. Yet this is no more warrant to neglect the ordinary, because God doth sometimes manifest his grace in an extraordinary way. True, in this conversion we have a pattern of what free grace can do, but it is a pattern without a promise. Where we have not a promise to encourage our hope, our hope is nothing but presumption. Verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Burkett notes, These words are our Savior's gracious answer to the penitent thief's humble prayer. Lord, remember me in thy kingdom, says the thief. Today thou shalt be with me in my kingdom, says our Savior. Where note 1, The immortality of the souls of men is without all doubt. Our desires after and hopes for immortality to prove our souls immortal and capable of that state. The souls of men die not with their bodies, but remain in a state of sensibility. Two, that there is a future and eternal state into which the soul passes at death. Death is our passage out of the swift river of time into the boundless and bottomless ocean of eternity. Three, 
that the souls of all the righteous at death are immediately received into a state of happiness and glory. This day shalt thou be with me, not after thy resurrection, but immediately after thy dissolution. That man's soul is asleep, or worse, that dreams of the soul sleeping till the resurrection. For why should the believer's happiness be deferred when they are immediately capable of enjoying it? Why should their salvation slumber when the wicked's damnation slumbereth not? How do such delays consist with Christ's ardent desires and his people's vehement longing to be together? Verses 44 through 49. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth till the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Burkett notes, observe here one, what prodigies of nature happened and fell out at the crucifixion of our Savior. The sun was darkened at the setting of the sun of righteousness. The veil of the temple was rent, signifying that God was now about to forsake his temple, that the ceremonial law was now abolishing, and that the partition wall betwixt Jews and Gentiles being now pulled down, all may have access to God through the blood of a mediator. Observe, too, the last prayer of our Savior before his death. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Their words full of faith and comfort, fit to be the last breathing of every gracious soul in this world. Learn hence that dying believers are both warranted and encouraged by Christ's example, believing to commend their precious souls into the hands of God as a gracious Father. Father, into thy hands. Observe 3. What influence our Savior's death had upon the centurion. He glorified God, saying, Verily this was a righteous man. Here note that Christ had a testimony of his innocency and righteousness given unto him from all sorts of persons whatsoever. Pilate and Herod pronounced him innocent. Pilate's wife proclaimed him a righteous person. Judas, the traitor, declared it was innocent blood. The thief on the cross affirmed he'd done nothing amiss, and the centurion owned him to be a righteous man, yea, the Son of God. Mark 15.39 Only the Pharisees and chief priests, which were teachers of others, not ignorance, but obstinacy and malice blinded and hardened them to their ruin and destruction. Instead of owning and receiving him for their Savior, they ignominiously put him to death as the vilest impostor.